All right, mic check. I think I remember how to do this. Um, it's been a little while. Um, I think over a month. Uh, welcome, everyone. This is Just Human number 216. I'm back. My summer is officially over. Kids are back in school five days a week. And uh, I'm back from the Badlands event in Florida, which was awesome. Had a great time. And yeah, it's time to get back to doing this show. Um, I've been missing it. And I found myself having uh, a little bit of difficulty being as detail-oriented as this show forces me to be um, lately. I, I, I kind of squirrel in some stuff before Devolution Power Hour in the effort to prepare for that show and have threaded here and there. Uh, but I've been missing the um, I've been missing doing this show and engaging with y'all, but I've also been missing the um, the pressure this show puts on me to pay attention to the details. And I was liking how things developed last year, especially in uh, the first half of this year, um, where I would be in the details Monday through Friday and then defect on the weekend. And, you know, so it was like flying low Monday through Friday and then pull up and, and get some high altitude on the weekends and then dive right back in on Monday. So, uh, I'm ready to be back. I think what we're going to do today is play catch up. Um, I, I, I have a, I have so much stuff I could cover. I'm, I'm definitely uh, saturated with uh, options. And I decided that I think what we're going to do is we're going to catch up on all of Trump's cases, um, or at least as best I can, and just try and get on track to where they're at right now. And we're going to look at buying crime family stuff and then a few other cases that I'm interested in. Um, I have more material than I can fit in this show, I think, depending on how much I nerd out and how much of it I read. Um, but I don't think we're going to read any filings today, like a whole filings. Uh, I just think that it'd be best to get everything current as far as this show goes with the news. And then after today... That'll allow us to jump into some more detailed analysis. So if we get a big filing, it's really interesting. We might go through the whole thing on Friday or at least uh, the most uh, important pieces of it. Um, it's it's man. I I, I really I think y'all feel it, too. Um, it's it's like every day is a week's worth of news. And it can't when I was putting together today's show. um almost everything I have bookmarked for today's show and, and stacked up could be its own like feature. Like if there was no other news, that one story would be the number one story in the country. But there's so much stuff going on that like, there was a few of them that I was like, Oh yeah, I forgot that happened. And like, like for example, like the biggest antitrust case in the history of the country is happening right now with DOJ and Google. And that should be like the most important story there is right now, but there's so much else going on that is so incredibly important. You know, there's only so much bandwidth. So I see there's a tiger on the loose in the chat. Good morning, burning bright. Um, man, we had a good time at, uh, at, at the Badlands event in Cocoa beach. Mrs. Bright did an amazing job. I don't think, I'm not sure burning bright actually helped her out at all, but Mrs. Bright was amazing. The event was amazing. I had a great time meeting people and hanging out. Um, I would advise that, um, you know, I learned a lesson that crane op 
I don't know if he's here this morning, but crane op can be dangerous. Watch out. Uh, if he walks up to you and says, I have a gift and he hands you one of these, watch out. Cause right behind it, it's an adult beverage and he's going to keep it filled. The He's not going to let it go empty. Crane op is like a, He's like a roaming bartender, and once uh once the conversation starts and he puts a Glen Cairn in your in your hand, um he he doesn't let it go empty. So um <laughs> we had a great time. My favorite thing, uh just for, just to continue this rambling intro, I'll tell you my favorite thing about my two favorite things about this Badlands event uh from this past weekend. Um my number one favorite thing was getting to see the Falcon heavy launch, uh, from the Kennedy space center. So hanging out with, uh, burning bright crane op goes to Patrick Henry, a bunch of other people. Um, we all found ourselves on the beach around midnight to watch the, the launch of the Falcon heavy and something I, good morning, green star, something I did not expect when I saw that rocket launch, which was really cool. I mean, it was really, I've never seen a rocket launch from that up close. It was way louder than I expected, and it was way brighter than I expected. Um, and the sky was beautiful. The clouds were am amazing layers of clouds that the rocket blasted through. It was just beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. But something I didn't expect was how much patriotism it would like inspire in me and how much like energy I would get from it. Like uh I didn't I didn't expect that at all. I just thought it was gonna be a neat rocket launch, but then I saw it and I kind of got overwhelmed a bit with just how amazing um america is and how amazing hu human beings are that they can create something capable of of, of like something something like that rocket and i kind of had this moment of like oh yeah like this is what this is that inspiration that comes from seeing these achievements in technology and knowing that they're uniquely american in nature. Um, I was a moment I really appreciated and I didn't expect the sense of patriotism that came with it, but it, it, it was there. Um, so that was, that was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful and, uh, and profound to me. Um, the other thing that was my favorite, which is uh, a different, has a completely different nature to it was um, I don't want to re reveal any personal information, but someone came up to me and let me know that me telling my stories of addiction and uh, in fighting addiction, overcoming it and um, whatnot, they let me know that that helped them process um, and understand uh, what some of their, one of their kids had gone through with addiction. And uh, so had a heart, unexpected heart to heart with uh, a Badlander who was at the event. Um, and it was a reminder to me that it's important to share your stories of addiction when the, the opportunity arises. And, because you just never know um, when, when you sharing your story is going to help someone else process their own experience, whether as an addict or as a family member or friend. Um, of someone who's an addict. So I really appreciated them coming up to me and telling me that. And um, I needed that reminder. So yeah, it was a great event and met a lot of wonderful people. And I'm very thankful uh, that I, I, I was blessed to, blessed by them.
Um, so thank you, Secrets, over on Red on uh, Pilled for the EMP. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. I see Anka Vanka over there. I got to meet Anka Vanka uh, this week, past weekend. Uh, she blessed Cranop and I with some Japanese whiskey, which we shared around, and it was delicious. It was very unique. At first, I didn't know what to make of it. Um, but after a few sips, it's the, the dark cherry started coming out in it and man, it was good. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Um, and it is a pleasure to meet you. Bear BL. Thank you very much. I am glad to be back. Von Hitch. Good to see you. Uh, there are aliens in Mexico. Okay. Well, that's neat. I guess <laughs> it doesn't, <laughs> it just kind of seems like a regular, like a story we see every week. There's more aliens, uh, fake and gay aliens. Uh, Jennifer Lynn, thank you very much. Much appreciated the rant for the rant. Um, all right. Let me see if I remember how to work this thing. We're going to talk about some stuff that you've, you've, you heard me talk. If you watch the, the Badlands event, then you heard me talk about some of this stuff. And you may hear me talk about it again tonight on Devilish and Power Hour. So just warning, some stuff you may have heard before. Some some of it you haven't, for sure. But um, that's the wrong button. I don't know what I'm doing. All right, here we go. All right, guys. If you want to, if you want to support the show, support what I do, rants are a great way. Substack, Substack subscriptions are the best way. Uh, but another way is Red, White, and Bourbon 45, where you can get some merch. I personally love buying merch. I buy merch all the time for my favorite bands. Uh, it's a great way to support them and to represent them. So um, there's some merch over in the, my store at redwhitebourbon45.com. Uh, all sorts of stuff. If you're interested, you can get stickers and mugs. I think the mugs is by far the best thing. They are. I love this mug. It's perfect. So... And they're high quality. I like these mugs. I use them all the time. All right. Redwhitebourbon45.com. That's where you can get Just Human merch. And if you want something sweet, then you need to go to BensonHoneyFarms.com and use rep code JUSTHUMAN. Get yourself some amazing honey that is raw, un, like not filtered. It's not heated. It's not pasteurized. It's like none of that stuff. It's just delicious, amazing honey that I have in my coffee right now. I absolutely love it. And I got to meet Mo and her and her husband. Um, I'd met him before, but I, I met him again at the event. Unfortunately, we didn't get to hang out very much at all. Um, but it was great to see them. Um, and uh, yeah, they have great products. I love everything I have from there. I use their soap every day. That's my second favorite thing from here besides the honey is the the soap. So bentonhoneyfarms.com, rep code just human. Links for this stuff are in the description of the show. All right, let's lead off right here where you guys have heard me. If you've seen, you've probably seen a clip going around from the event this weekend where I addressed this. I'm not going to play the clip. You can find it on my socials, though, if you would like to, to watch it and uh, share it around. I'm just going to tell you what I said. So we were told the Durham report didn't mean anything. A lot of black pillars tried to convince us that the Durham report didn't mean anything. It was a failure. It was a disappointment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the Durham report is being used right now in a couple important cases that were kind of uh, on winding down for sure. It's one way to put it. Um, on the other one hand, 
on, on the other hand, the Trump Clinton one was pretty and kind of bad off. So you may remember the Trump versus Clinton and her cohorts RICO case. It's a civil RICO case. Something interesting about civil RICO cases is that they can become criminal. Um, Trump filed this civil RICO case back in, I want to say it was March 2022. Uh, I may be mistaken there. I think it was March 2022. Let me pull it up. Because this question came up on the panel. And I couldn't remember the exact date it was filed. March 2022. Man, I'm good. I also may have cheated before the show and looked. Uh, so this case was winding down. It was dismissed um, back earlier this year. I want to say, was it the 28th? Um, maybe a little earlier than that. Order on case closing right here on March 13th of this year. So about a year later, this case was uh, winding down and they, they were awarding sanctions. So all the people that Trump included in this, which is all the players in Spygate and Rushgate, all the players, it's everybody, Comey and Strzok and Glenn Simpson and Hillary and Mark Elias and the DNC, et cetera, et cetera. It's everybody. So they remember they all scrambled to get lawyers and fight this civil RICO case that Trump bought in his, his case, the indictment just tells the story of what they did to him. But remember, it came out in March 2022, so it came out before the Sussman trial had even started. Uh, Trump was suing them. Um, Robbie Mook is in here, too. Lots of people. So he loses this, or gets dismissed, and they start filing for sanctions against Trump and his attorneys for bringing the case in the first place, one, and then two, wanting them to pay, uh, wanting the judge to award attorney's fees to um, all the defendants in it and make Trump, you know, pay for that. So those filings are what have been happening in this case for about six months now. But the Durham report came out earlier this year. And thanks to the Durham report coming out, Alina Haba, one of Trump's attorneys, one of his best attorneys, I would say, grabbed the Durham report and on July 27th made this filing and she noted the recent release of the Durham report seismically alters the legal landscape of this case. While this court previously held that Do President Donald J. Trump and his counsel made frivolous factual and legal allegations, the Durham report corroborates many facts and allegations about which this court expressed skepticism. In fact, it bolsters several allegations that this court seemed to dismiss as unsupported, not giving them the assumption of truth that they deserved at the motion of dismissal stage. Notably, the Durham report outlines the role that each RICO defendant played to harm President Trump and directly contradicts factual claims previously made by certain defendants before this court. This new evidence confirms the plausibility of President Trump's amended complaint and is enough to get President Trump past the motion to dismiss threshold and makes any award of sanctions inappropriate. How do you like them apples? So now this case is back alive. And instead of us dealing with awarding sanctions and Trump about have to about to dish out. Um, I think it was like $1.9 million in fees or something was what it was totaling up to. Uh, now he's, uh, he's, he's turning this case around and we'll see what happens. The judge hasn't ordered, hasn't filed an order on it yet right here. Um, you may also remember this, this, uh, case because it's the one with Middlebrooks. Remember that judge? Um, big fan of Trump, right? So, 
one to watch. Absolutely one to watch. This case, I had actually forgotten about it uh, in a way. I hadn't checked it in a long time. And I want to give a shout out to Just Say Win and Curum17 or Curum17 um, over on True Social. They both tagged me last week and said, hey, have you seen this filing in the Trump Rico case? And I had not. So I really appreciate them grabbing me and bringing this, bringing this to my attention. There's another case, though, that I was already watching. And I've been watching it this summer because this case is winding down a bit. It's the uh, Brian Huddleston versus FBI and DOJ. This is the Seth Rich FOIA case. That's more commonly how it's known, I think. Um, Brian Huddleston has done amazing work to to get some information from DOJ and FBI in regards to Seth Rich laptop and any other documents, evidence they have. Um, he's done a great job. Yeah. The, probably the, the highlight of it maybe, um, or like the biggest finding they've gotten is that the FBI has a, a copy of Seth Rich's personal laptop. And then they have his work laptop. I think I have that right. It could be the other way around, but in evidence, they have, personal laptop and Seth Rich's work laptop, which we didn't know that there were two laptops that the FBI had possession of prior to last winter. Um, and it's because of this case that we were able to get that. And there's lots of other things that we've, we've learned from this case, but those are some of the biggest ones, um, or at least one of the biggest ones I should say. But this case was winding down and DOJ had been arguing for the past like six months that we, we gave you guys everything that we have, everything that we're required to give over to you. And there's not really anything else that we need to give. We don't have to give you anything else. So please stop asking. You're going to be, we're going to, we're going to, um, we're, we're considering this frivolous now because you keep on saying there's more that you deserve to see and you don't, uh, this completely stonewalling on, on all the efforts, uh, by, by Huddleston to get anything else. Well, Durham report again feeds into this on May 11th, 11th, 2023, a little more than a month after Mr. Huddleston filed his MSJ special counsel, John H. Durham released a report about politicization and corruption in the FBI's investigation of purported collusion between president Donald J. Trump and Russia. And then they cite the report, which is filed along with this memorandum here. The report was damning for the FBI and is and it is acutely relevant here. As this court has previously has noted previously, Mr. Huddleston's request for records about Seth Rich is inextricably linked with the FBI's investigation into Russian collusion. And it points to see the September 29, 2022 memorandum and opinion and order on this case. In the September 29, 2022 memorandum, the court also noted the FBI's long history of belated revelations about records concerning Seth Rich. And since the memorandum was issued, the FBI and the Department of Justice have admitted that there is a direct link between Seth Rich's work laptop and Russian collusion, which is what John Durham was investigating. The sources cited therein... Uh, it points to another filing. Specifically, they have admitted that there is a direct link between Seth Rich's work laptop and the purported hacking of the Democratic National Committee emails that were later published by WikiLeaks. 
When that history is combined with the new admissions in the Durham report, the FBI is left without any shred of credibility, and the haughty, dismissive, above-the-law tone of the defendant FBI's response to plaintiff's corrected motion for summary judgment is even more galling than it would be otherwise. So this case was at a kind of locked up where FBI was like, no, we're not, we don't, we're not giving you anything else and we don't have to give you anything else. And we want it to be over. And it was looking like it was about to be over. But now thanks to the Durham report, this case has new life breathed into it because they have this 300 plus page report from John Durham that they can use to say, Hey, we know the FBI has more than this. The, the Durham report tells us so. Thank God for the Durham report. Now there's something else, and let me uh let me change the screen so I can log into this real quick. In my thread on Telegram, True Social, and then here on on X. And by the way, shout out to Green Star for making the clips for me. Appreciate it. I think I saw that you sent me some more clips, Green Star. I'm going to grab those. I'll share those later today. Um, there was one other case I did not include in this thread. And the reason I didn't include it is because I can't, I can't tell. I don't know if, if Durham report is being used in this case. I suspect it is. And I think it's, it's very likely that it is, but I can't see it because this case is taking place in us tax court. So everything on it is sealed. It's all private unless it's an order or it's uh, some other notice. Um, but I can't, I can't see into this case. This is the Clinton whistleblowers case, uh, the Clinton Foundation whistleblower case, which has been going on for a long time. And I think this case is very important. Um, I got to admire them. They've been at this for like four years as of this summer. And I think they've gotten, they've done some good work with it, uh, but it's difficult to get a gauge or, or to estimate where exactly this case is um, and what's going on with it because you can't read any of the filings in it except for orders that basically say, yeah, keep this thing under seal. Um, you can't open this other stuff up. So you, you'll, you'll be able to see this and this order says, they filed a motion, the and it's so ordered that they're granted permission to file another motion, and then this it's also ordered that they can't file here, and you get stuff like this, but you, you can't see the substance of the filings because it has to do with taxes and stuff. So there's that's the way this court works, and you know there's personal information, but I think I strongly strongly suspect that right here is the Durham report. Because it says this is an exhibit. It's from the Clinton Foundation whistleblowers. They're the petitioners. And it's their motion to supplement the administrative record. And it's sealed. And it's 356 pages long. And the Durham report is just over 300. So I strongly suspect this is the Durham report being filed in the Clinton Foundation whistleblower case to support their effort. I remember Durham did investigate the Clinton foundation. And, um, when I wrote my, like, I think it's my best Substack. 
Um, I think it is like as far as it being a good read. I think it's my best Substack, which is my mo- my one I wrote last uh, earlier this year about um, Durham investigating uh, DNC emails and Loretta Lynch and um, the Renteria memo. And then that leading to him uh, using a grand jury to subpoena records from Soros Foundation, from Open Society Foundation, not Soros Foundation, but Soros's Open Society Foundation. So when I wrote that article and then shared it around, the Clinton Foundation whistleblowers grabbed, grabbed it, shared it, and then they, they tagged me in a comment on it and told me that, or reminded me, that Durham sat with them and interviewed them for several hours early on in his investigation. So I strongly suspect this is the Durham report right here, but I don't know. So because I wasn't sure I didn't include it in this thread is what I'm saying. So that it might be three cases that the Durham report is now factoring into, but you know, it's a deep state cover up, right? Right. That's why we keep learning more. That's why the Durham report keeps on popping up in interesting places and helping out other important cases. It's because it's a cover-up. All right. Now let's go to Trump's cases, which are difficult to keep track of. One, because there's so many. Two, because Fulton County's online interface and website for keeping track of cases absolutely sucks. It sucks. I hate it so much. Okay, look at this bullshit. Look at this bullshit, guys. You want to look at a case over here? You want to follow Trump's case? Okay. Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take you back to Windows 95. And we're going to put the filings here, but we're not going to put them in any kind of order. There's 66 filings so far in Fulton County related to this case. And you they're not in order. They're just, I don't know what the order is. I don't know what is, I don't, I don't know. I guess I can organize them by size. And I can order organize them by name. But I can't organize them by docket number or date. So I want to scream. I absolutely want to scream. I hate it so much. It is so difficult to track these Fulton cases. And yeah. So <laughs> keep me and every other citizen journalist in your prayers who's trying to follow this case because they make it as difficult as possible. And by the way, this isn't the only way to find this case. There's a whole nother route you can go on to try and get at this case and, and follow the filings. But when you open stuff in, one, it times out if you don't move your mouse on screen for like five minutes, it times out and kicks you out of the site. And then um, every time you try and open up a a link in it, you can't open it in a new tab. 
you have to open it right there with a direct click and then you have to back out when you want like it's it's a it's a total mess um i think it was this one no that's new york that one's also a mess but it's better than fulton i can't believe how bad fulton is so i'm relying in following this case i'm very much relying on some mainstream media sources and then uh, some local law journalists who are actually physically there and working that that beat. I was trying to see where is I know I bookmarked it. I don't see where it is right now. Anyway, it's a pain in the butt to follow Trump's uh, Trump's case down there in Georgia. Doing the best I can though. So um one story here that broke, and we're there's a whole bunch of news I could hit on with Trump's uh Fulton County case. I'm just gonna grab stuff that I think is notable and 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 pull that out, but I'm gonna miss things that are also relevant, I'm sure. Um let me zoom in on this. All right, so one of the news stories that recently broke is that the grand jury that handed up the indictment against Trump. Why is everything highlighted? Stop. Stop being highlighted. Stop it. All right. The grand jury that handed up an indictment against former President Trump is back in the D.C. federal courthouse today. This is back on September 7th. After a four-week break, indicating the investigation into election interference is ongoing. CNN spotted the jurors headed into the courthouse this morning. That's back on September 7th. Now, I have a bit of a question here because Jack Smith told Judge Cannon that 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 grand jury was over. So I'm kind of confused. It must. Is it because both both grand juries, there were two grand juries in D.C., I think, and one ended up producing. Um, He was using he was using for the docs case. Right. And then he indicted in Florida. And then there's the DC one that's for the January 6th case. So I'm a bit confused as to which this one is referring to, which grand jury it's referring to, because Smith told Judge Cannon that the grand jury that led to the to the indictment in the Docs case, which is Judge Cannon is over, that that grand jury was finished. And he told her that after Judge Cannon had pressured him over the legality and the ethics of impaneling a grand jury in D.C. to indict someone in Florida for actions that happened in Florida. So I ha- I'm a little I'm guessing this is the, the same grand jury that handed up the January 6th indictment, which is um, the case that Judge Chutkin or Chutkin is handling. But if it's the one that Smith told Cannon had already was over, then he's in trouble. Surely it's the DC one that produced the J6 uh, indictment. Now, if I had to guess, what he's going for is a superseding indictment, and he's going to bring some sort of seditious conspiracy charge. Or at least that's the goal. I'm expecting a superseding indictment in the the case in 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 uh, D.C. 
and for more defendants to be added and for it to him to bring a um, seditious conspiracy charge. But we'll see. I think I wanted, was it this one? No, that's, that's not it. That's not what I want. All right. So something else we talked about this on um, sticking with Jack Smith, really kind of, yeah, kind of sticking with Jack Smith, but this has to do with all the cases, I guess. Uh, we talked about a 14th amendment amendment challenge out of Texas a while back. I think it was on devolution power hour where there's a, a guy who's running doing a writing campaign for president. And um, he already filed at SCOTUS and it's been distributed for conference at SCOTUS and there should be an opinion on it. If they decide to give an opinion on it, uh, it should come out in October sometime. And it has to do with Trump's eligibility. There's other challenges on the 14th Amendment um, against Trump. And they're saying that because the 14th Amendment Section 3, um, it says, let me see. All right. So the letter describes their rationale. This is a different case that's being brought. There's a Minnesota suit. There's another suit, I want to say in Georgia, maybe. There's a Colorado one. I think there's one in Georgia, but I'm not, I could just be getting confused. Uh, so what they're citing is this, the letter describes their rationale for why Trump should be disqualified in what they call the self executing nature in quote of section three of the 14th amendment, which states that someone isn't eligible for future office. If while they were previously in office, they took an oath to support the constitution, but then quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or gave aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, unless they are granted amnesty by a two-thirds vote of Congress. So that is what they're citing as saying that Trump isn't eligible to be on the ballot because he either, A, did engage in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution, or B, he gave aid or comfort to those who did or to enemies of the constitution. Now, some of these cases have already been thrown out. Um, at least one I saw was thrown out for standing. Uh, and that would be this one here. Judge dismisses 14th amendment lawsuit against Trump rules the plaintiffs in it lacked standing. This is back from August 31st. But there are other challenges popping up, and it's all an effort to get Trump off. This is from, this article is from September 12th. So this is after this dismissal. I suspect they will all be dismissed unless they're brought by someone who actually would be damaged. Somebody who has standing to bring this would be somebody who is also on the ballot, I believe. And that's what makes the one out of Texas unique. And it's unique because it's already been distributed for conference at SCOTUS. That's the one to watch. Um, I don't think any of these will be successful at all at keeping Trump off the ballot, but I love that this is a topic of conversation and it, that it's a, it's a narrative potential, right? As BB calls it, it's a potential out there, him being off the ballot. And I love it as bait for the GOP establishment because the GOP establishment would love to keep Trump off the ballot. The swamp would love to keep him off the ballot. And 
this is this is like a like a like a like a glue trap, right? Like they they're not going to be able to resist stepping on this glue trap and getting tied to an effort to take Trump off the ballot. And I love that about it. Um so we'll see now I I think if I have to I was thinking I think I said this on Devil's in Power Hour uh last week. I think it was that I wouldn't be surprised if SCOTUS doesn't hear the case or something like something happens where it's a uh, SCOTUS doesn't hear the case or maybe um, SCOTUS doesn't give an opinion yet. And then Jack Smith brings a superseding indictment that charges uh seditious, seditious conspiracy. And then SCOTUS then gives an opinion. Like I think those two things are going to happen pretty near to each other. One, one or the other coming first and it's going to be these compete. It's going to be these uh, like competing narratives a bit where SCOTUS is saying, no, that you have to actually be charged with these things and convicted. Um, and then you're going to have the seditious conspiracy charge brought against Trump. I think it would make like narrative wise. I think it would play out that SCOTUS um, comes out and says like, Trump can be on the ballot basically and clears, clears up section three of the 14th amendment. And then like right after Jack Smith brings a seditious conspiracy charge because, and then Trump can say, see, look what they did. SCOTUS already said I could be on the ballot. So Jack Smith and crooked DOJ brought another indictment trying to keep me off it. Right. I can totally see how that plays out and it might be just a little too on the nose, but lots of things are on the nose lately. Um, all right, let's go to the Georgia case, which I already, I was complaining about earlier, but let's talk about what's happening with it. This is from September 8th. DA Fannie Willis, fresh off her victory against Meadows, who again had his case, uh, he was denied, uh, by the judge. He wanted to move his case to federal court. The judge denied it, said that he didn't meet the quote unquote law, low bar for removal. Um, I read some of the filing in that where they said that, uh, where he denied, uh, Meadows motion to move it, remove it to federal court. I can get it. And this is what I want to, okay. I want to flesh something out with you guys that, this hit me last night as I was trying to go to sleep. And I hate it when that happens because it keeps me up longer. Um, so Meadows was chief of staff and the chief of staff is like a catch-all job. I've, I've read it described as the chief of staff does scheduling stuff. He does phone calls for the president. He does lobbying for the president, whether it's lobbying other department officials, lobbying politicians in his own party or in the opposing party, lobbying various organizations, lobbying foreign leaders. Um, the chief of staff is a job that is very broad, maybe not as broad as Terwilliger said it was, uh, Meadows defense attorney, but it's still a very broad um, job broad responsibilities wise and anything the president tells the chief of staff to do like the president could tell the chief of staff like anything it's it's like it's that kind of job and 
the chief of staff is um it's a cabinet position but it often involves doing things that aren't don't don't necessarily seem directly within the the role of the executive branch because he's like the right-hand man of the president and he gets sent on all sorts of errands and you may remember that Trump always had Mark Meadows next to him uh in 2020, maybe um, last half of 2020, like every time we saw Trump going to a rally, anywhere he was going, Meadows was w- was with him. It was like Meadows and Scavino, right? Every single time, all the time. So Meadows was doing a lot of work for Trump. And when Meadows was trying to get his case moved to federal court, he was saying that I was the whole time he was acting in the capacity as a um, a cabinet member. And so everything he did was covered under federal statute. And that's why this case should be removed to federal court. It makes a lot of sense. But the judge said, look, the definition you gave is too broad. Uh, There's a low bar here for you to meet. And you didn't meet it because there wasn't. The things you're the things you're doing, the calling people and whatnot, it all seems like campaign stuff. And that's one of the tricky things about um this situation with the chief of staff is that because the chief of staff does so much lobbying and scheduling and all these phone calls and emails and stuff, it and it happened in a campaign year, it the lines between what the campaign does and what the executive office does are blurred together. And the judge came down the side that what Meadows was doing as relates to this case seemed to be more campaign related rather than executive branch related. So he denied it. And thinking about this, I had, had the thought, what all did John Podesta do as chief of staff? And what other, what other stuff did chiefs of staff of Obama administration, Obama's chiefs of staff and Bush's chiefs of staff, what all did they engage in while they were in that role? How much of it would fall outside of their executive branch duties? And how much of it could come up in a court case where they might try to get it removed to federal court and the judge denied it because like, there you go, Brian Murphy. And a judge is going to be there. Like what do, what do pizza and hot dogs have to do with the executive branch? Huh? Mr. Podesta. So I started thinking about how this was denied. And instead of seeing it as, Oh man, this loss for Mark Meadows, I can't believe this judge ruled this way. I started thinking about, well, what if this was a case and the person we're talking about was John Podesta and the actions we're talking about were the actions Podesta engaged while serving in the Obama White House. And and I really started to see it as a template and as a precedent setting moment. And it makes me wonder if Meadows and Terwilliger did this on purpose and failed to meet that low bar on purpose in order to set that precedent. Now, Meadows immediately appealed, immediately appealed this decision, 
it could get overturned and it, this whole thing gets removed to federal court as far as Meadows is concerned. That could still happen. Um, but there isn't a whole lot of case law on this matter. There is some. There is some. And the judge looked at it. But ultimately, the judge was able to set a... He 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 judged where the bar was. Decided Meadows didn't need it. Um, it could get overturned, and that would mean that would like set in place where that bar was as far as the federal district court is concerned. They might say, "Yeah, it was a low bar, but actually the bar is a little lower." Judge, so we're we're overturning this, or the federal court might agree. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens, but. Um, I think that's something to keep in mind with how this case goes that think about how it might apply to other, other folks who have served in that same position and their actions. Now, the next one that's coming up is Jeff Clark. I want to say his hearing is on September 18th, if I remember. I have to admit I'm having a little bit of trouble keeping track of all of these dates. And I have a post that illustrates just how crazy this stuff is. Um, Jeff Clark's is the next one who's filed to remove it to federal court. A lot of people think that this one has a great chance of being removed because Jeff Clark, his actions were done within DOJ. His letters and uh, messages he sent were done with, you know, they're like internal DOJ messages. So, Whereas Meadows is like doing a phone call. Jeff Clark's concerns memos, but the thing is, Jeff Clark was told, don't do this. And Jeff Clark was told this is inappropriate. Fannie Willis actually has a pretty good argument against, I think Fannie Willis has a stronger argument against Jeff Clark's bid for removal than she did Meadows. Which is what leaves me wondering if Meadows and Terwilliger decided to not meet that low bar on purpose just so they could then appeal. Anyway, from Fannie Willis's opposition uh, right here, this is her response to Jeff Clark's bid for removal. She writes, in attempting to make such a showing, the significant problem faced by this defendant, meaning Jeff Clark, is that he was explicitly told by his immediate superiors in DOJ that what he was attempting to do was outside the scope of his authority within DOJ. That's number one. And that's huge. Two, that he was actually attempting to take actions outside the authority of DOJ as a whole. That is also huge. And three, that it was, in quote, entirely unacceptable, inappropriate, and irresponsible. And four, that, quote, what he was proposing was nothing less than a department meddling in the outcome of a presidential election. And five, that he was making a central claim that was entirely untrue and completely at odds with the results of actual DOJ investigations. Clark was told these things more than once. So... Jeff Clark's problem, even though he did this stuff internally to DOJ and it very much on the surface looks like, oh yeah, this is, he was, he was doing this in his capacity. 
as an as a federal employee at DOJ, his own bosses were telling him, "Don't do this. This is in a, unacceptable. This is inappropriate. This is irresponsible. This is outside the scope of your authority. This is outside the scope of DOJ's authority as a whole. It's contrary to to findings that of DOJ's own investigations, et cetera, et cetera." And I think that basically blows up Jeff Clark's uh, effort right there. I think that blows it all up. I could be wrong. I'm not a lawyer. But, yeah. It's a damn good argument. I think you got to admit that. Um, that's one thing that's always... Jeff Clark, who for some reason follows me on X, um... <laughs> I've always given him side eye. I've always given him side eye because of this stuff right here with DOJ telling him not to do it, that it was inappropriate what he was doing. And, um, yeah. And then because of where he was in DOJ, he was like an environmental guy. And then all of a sudden he's going to Trump. See, there's this other thing about Jeff Clark where he, He wanted Trump to fire Rosen and make him a acting AG. And that's always made me a little bit sus of him. It was like this put me in coach kind of thing. And. Yeah. There's I just have maybe as B, maybe BB would say it gets the Jimmy's rustling. Although I'm still unclear as to what exactly that means. All right, next, another fun thing happening in this case. Trump is considering calling lawmakers as witnesses during his criminal trial for January 6th. That would be a lot of fun. The report that Daily Mail obtained names Senators Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz with a source telling the outlet that objections by the senators were very important because a formal objection required a member of the House and Senate to sign off. Calling the witnesses would reportedly be to show that Trump's alleged concerns with the 2020 election were not unique to him. Kind of like saying, are you going to arrest everybody who questioned the 2020 election? Are you going to indict all of us because we all had questions and concerns about it? Calling any witnesses, including members of Congress, would require approval from the judge in the case and the move could face backlash from the prosecution led by Jack Smith, blah, 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 blah. The trial date for the case is currently set at March 4th. That's for Trump's J6 case, which is the day before Super Tuesday. And I love that. It's perfect. All right. So this is what it's like following the uh, Georgia case. This is the state of things with the Georgia case. Like if, if you're trying to track it, this case that has so many people in it. In fact, I have a really handy chart to help me keep track of who's indicted and what their charges are and everything should be right over here. Yes. I have two charts actually. There's this one. Go away. Go away. Pop up. There's this one right here, which is a spreadsheet to help you keep track, and it's very long. But this chart is even better. 
So here's all the defendants at the top. And then here are charges on the left side and then check marks for who's got those charges. It's crazy keeping track of this. It's even more crazy trying to keep track of their dates. So right here, as of September 12th, Sidney Powell and Ken Cheesebro are set to be tried together starting on October 23rd. Just them. Fanny Willis wants it to be everybody on October 23rd. And she's filed a motion uh, for that to happen. But right here, right as of right now, it's October 23rd for Powell and Cheesebro. Mark Meadows does not want to be tried alongside anyone. He's filed to sever his case away from everybody. Trump, Eastman, Still, Schaefer, Clark, and Cheeley do not want to be tried alongside any co-defendant who requests a speedy trial. So they're going against Fannie Willis and saying, no, we don't want to be tried on October 23rd or on any other date for somebody who enacts a speedy trial. If you don't know, in Georgia, when you file for a speedy trial, the law requires that you be tried or that your trial begin within the next term of trials and juries being impaneled, okay? So the next time that they they impanel these juries and they go to load up some trials on the calendar, your case, if you file for a speedy trial in Georgia, you your case has to be among those that are put there in that schedule. And if that doesn't happen, you're automatically acquitted. Unique thing about Georgia law. So these guys don't want to be a tried alongside anybody who does a speedy trial. Rudy Giuliani has filed and said that he does not want to be tried alongside Cheesebro and Powell. Scott Hall does not want to be tried alongside any defendant who requests a speedy trial, and he wants to sever his case from any aspect of the state's case that took place outside of Coffee County, Georgia. So Scott Hall's like, cut me off from everybody. I want to be tried on my own, and I don't want to be tried with anybody who has anything to do with anything that took place outside of Coffee County because Coffee County is the only thing I have anything to do with. Trevian Cootie, or Cuddy, whatever, does not, quote, want to be included in a speedy trial, but says she cannot evaluate the merits of any potential severance motions until she receives discovery on September 15th. So she doesn't want to be rushed to trial on October 23rd, but she doesn't want to make any filings to officially sever her case because she wants discovery. Ray Smith would like the judge to divide the defendants into manageable groups for trial. <laughs> so Ray, shout out to Ray Smith with a curveball, something completely different from everybody else. He's like, let's just let's just portion people off into manageable groups. And then Harrison Floyd wants to be tried alongside Trevian Cuddy and Stephen Lee, but no one else. Stephen Lee, Kathy Latham, Jenna Ellis, Misty Hampton, and Mike Roman have not yet filed motions to sever. Did you guys keep track of all that? There's 19 defendants in this case, and there's about six or seven different breakdowns of how they want their particular portion of the case handled. And Fannie Willis and the judge are having to juggle all of this, and the clerk. And <laughs> what a mess. 
What a mess. And then on top of all that, I can't believe Fannie Willis said this. But when she was arguing against severance for Powell and Cheeseboro, which she won, um, she they didn't they they weren't allowed to sever their cases from each other, is what the judge ruled. So they're both headed to trial on October twenty third. Um, Fannie Willis actually argued that, or told the judge that she expects this case to last four months her RICO case to last four months and to call 150 witnesses. But here's the absurd thing. She said that even for the cases that are filed for speedy trial, she's still going to do that. Regardless of who the defendants are, she's still going to put on a four month, 150 witness trial. Even if, those witnesses aren't specifically dealing with the defendants. Like she, she, she tried to tell the judge that even if you don't put everybody on trial on October 23rd, like I want you to, and it's just pal and cheese, bro, I'm still going to call 150 witnesses and it's still going to take four months for just those two defendants. And then whenever we try the other people, I'm also going to put on a four month trial and call 150 witnesses. Now, I don't really believe her. And I think all she was trying to do was get the judge to like, be like, oh, well, I don't want to go through that many months of the same trial. Like, basically, I don't want to watch the same trial five times because there's five different groups of defendants. Um, but regardless, that's what she's forecasting is a four-month trial, 150 witness event. Um, and that's right. Snarky does four months of a Trump campaign. That's right. Every day that Trump is under indictment and every day that Trump is on trial is an in-kind donation to his campaign by his enemies. And covering Trump trials and Trump cases is no different than covering his campaign. That's that's what this is. We're looking at Trump's campaign here. So come at him. Bring it on. Um, I wanted to read this short thread from Kingmaker, who's a good follow over on X. Um, this has to do with uh, the, the report. that There was a report that came out about all the people that um, Fannie Willis didn't charge. Okay, You may have seen it or, or seen some news floating around about it. The grant this the way Georgia works with the special grand jury, it's kind of weird. Imagine that. Um, so there was a special grand jury, very special, and that's who Fannie Willis took her her case to in the first place. And they got to vote on who to indict, and that's the one that the crazy lady who went around on did a media tour. Um, that's the one that she was on and they voted to indict everybody, everybody, everybody that was put up there. General Flynn, Mike Lindell, everybody. They wanted to indict every single person that was put in front of them. Lindsey Graham, uh, I think Brian Kemp, um, a whole bunch of people that that special grand jury was very special. 
and they they just wanted ever they wanted a, a jail card to hand it out to everybody. And that report came out showing that, well, one of the people, well, Fannie Willis obviously didn't indict everybody. She she chose who she was going to indict, indict, and left some of those out. And there's a reason for that. Um, and one of those reasons is that she had a conflict of interest right here. Um, a judge disqualified Fannie Willis from pursuing one of the GOP electors because of her partisan activity. And Kingmaker writes, based on the court's finding, the DA Willis was conflicted from investigating one of the alternate alternate electors. She should be disqualified from the entire case. The indictment accuses all defendants of having engaged in a RICO enterprise and conspiracy to alter the election. Since she was conflicted from investigating and indicting one of the alleged conspirators, she is disqualified as to all. The one she let go because of the conflict is now a material witness in the case. I don't see how she can justify stepping aside, including her office, or not stepping aside, right? Because she wasn't allowed, she was restricted by a judge from investigating this person and indicting them. But now she's made them that same person who she has a conflict of interest with. She's made them a material witness in the case against other people she was investigating and would have indicted that person alongside if not for that judge finding that there was a conflict. Back to Keymaker. Boiled down to the basics, imagine a prosecutor investigating a criminal conspiracy made up of two individuals. A court finds she is conflicted from going after one conspirator. The solution to the conflict is to, let, is to not let the one guy skate while prosecuting his co-conspirator. That prosecution would be based on the same facts, the same unlawful conspiracy, and the same conspirators, yet the conflict would lead to an unequal application of the law. The conspirator who created the conflict gets off, while the other guy has the book thrown at him. That's the very definition of unequal justice, created solely by an unethical prosecutor taking a case she never should have started. That's a situation that we have here, and I the reason I'm bringing this up, besides it just being a good short thread, is that I think this is going to come up. I think this is something to watch for in motions to dismiss, is to watch for this specific thing being brought up. There's no doubt that Fannie Willis is a political animal, and the reason she's bringing this cases at all is because politics. She wants to be a star. She wants to be senator, governor, something. She is building. She looks at these cases as her building her political career. And I'm sure you guys realize that. Okay. Got a couple more things. I'm going to switch over to the latest episode of the Biden crime family, AKA meet the Bidens. Um, but before we do in Trump's cases, um, right now, the next event, I want to say that there is on the 18th, we have Jeff Clark's thing. And then I want to then Sc and SCOTUS in October should give a ruling 
or not. They're either going to give an opinion on that 14th Amendment challenge out of Texas or they're going to ignore it. But it's been distributed for conference. Um, Trump has not yet filed to remove his case to federal court, but he's told the judge that he may do so. I'm expecting he will do so, but he's letting the other uh, other motions play out. The ones that Meadows brought and then has appealed, lost and then appealed, and then Jeff Clark's, which is coming up. Um, stuff that happens in state court will be is streamed online. There's a YouTube page for Fulton County Superior Court. There's also a YouTube page for each judge. Uh, and when I find those links, I will share them on my socials so that we can watch those, those hearings. I know that, or I'm sure that Badlands will cover some of those and as possible, I will join that coverage. Um, but there's, I was talking about this at the Badlands event this past weekend that whether this whole thing gets removed, if this whole thing gets, or pieces of it gets removed to federal court, Fannie Willis still gets to like prosecute the case, but it would be in federal court under federal rules. And it, it could bring in some federal immunity. Every case that, um, I think it was Leslie McAdoo Gordon. I think she found, if I remember right, she found 18 cases where a state charged a, um, a federal official with some crime that they were alleged to have committed while they were a federal official. And in those 18 time, every time that she found, I think it was 18 recent cases is what it was. Maybe that's how she phrased it. Each one of those 18 were removed to federal court and then they were dismissed because they applied the immunity clause and said that these people were acting within the capacity of a federal official and you can't charge them with a crime. So that could happen. That's the upside of it going to federal court, right? But I'm questioning whether or not we actually want that necessarily, because this is so good for Trump's campaign right here, what is happening right now. Um, the battle and the story that the battle is, uh, is telling us and then the stories that are being created around it have so much benefit for Trump and are just they're helping him so much with his campaign uh, that I don't want, you don't want it to end too quickly. You know, it's that Willy Wonka meme of the, what is it? The suspense is killing me. I hope it will last or the tension is killing me. I hope it will last. It's kind of like that. Um, but if it gets denied for removal to federal court and it stays in Georgia, guess what? We get cameras. So which would you rather have? Would you rather have, it go to federal court and get dismissed? Or would you rather it stay in state court in Georgia and have cameras in the courtroom for the whole time? Either one seems like a win to me. Either one is just a different flavor of dessert, right? Right? Like, so... I don't think that's, like, there's a silver lining uh, to each one. Trump, Trump, it's a win either way. So, all right, so let's go to the Hunter Biden stuff. What you need to know first is that any day now we could get a new Hunter Biden indictment. You may remember that uh, the plea agreement and all that blew up spectacularly. It was awesome. And, um, well, 
The Speedy Trial Act requires that the government obtain a return of an indictment by a grand jury by Friday, September 29th at the earliest. The government, meaning special counsel David Weiss, intends to seek the return of an indictment in this case before that date. So, this has to do with the gun charge, I believe, and this is in the District of Columbia. So, we're expecting a, um, an indictment of Hunter Biden over the gun charge to be brought in D.C., and it should appear any time now. Hunter Biden's attorneys, amazingly, are still claiming, still claiming, that the plea agreement they signed is good. And that the government can't bring a new indictment because they're still under the agreement they already signed. So there's still this battle going on there. But I think Weiss is going to bring an indictment anyway. And then that there's going to have to be a hearing where I guess Hunter Biden's attorneys are going to bring up the plea agreement again and say, no, we signed this and it's good. And it's still, and you can't bring this charge. We'll see how that plays out. But I want to give shout out to Coda Pont who is a good follow on True Social and on X. He points out that the statute of limitations on that gun charge ends October 12th. We got a time crunch here. Now, to be honest, guys, I don't care that much about the gun charge. I mean... I'm not even sure, well, how, okay, put it in this context. How do you feel about this gun charge because it's Hunter Biden? How strongly do you feel about it when you know the defendant is Hunter Biden versus how strongly would you feel about it if the defendant was someone else? I think that's a question you got to ask yourself. Do I care about this gun charge more so because of the actual crime alleged here or do I care about it because Hunter Biden is the defendant or is the alleged def alleged uh, criminal here in this for this charge, right? I think I think we all care about it because it's Hunter Biden and we just want anything at all to happen to him, right? Which is understandable. It's totally understandable. But of all the things for Hunter Biden to be charged for, out of all the things that could be brought against him, the gun charge is weak sauce, isn't it? I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm just saying in the in the scheme of things, in this in all the charges that could be brought, this one isn't the one. Um, isn't the one I'm setting all my hopes on or anything. Uh, but it does. It is. It, it feeds the narrative that Hunter Biden gets away. That's right. Uh, Nam. Uh, Nam. Nam C. Mopar. Yes, that's right. It feeds the narrative. That, that he gets away with everything. We're over here screaming, he can't get away with everything. Surely he's going to get caught somehow, right? So it, if it feels it in Stefanon, yeah, I totally agree. I want equal justice. Yep. Right? Yeah. <laughs> SPNZ, dim with a gun charge is bonus comedy. That's so true. Um, yeah. So anyway, this is coming and it will make for an interesting. Watch Biden do some gun push at the same time. Watch Biden do some gun law push, like two-way crackdown thing. 
right around the same time his son gets in, gets indicted for, or maybe he already started and I missed it. His son's going to get a gun, a gun charge right on the time that Biden launches an initiative for gun safety or something. It seems like narratives play out that way. All right, more. From Chad Pergram over at Fox News. This is from September 12th. So this is yesterday. This is more recent. Fox has obtained the transcript of an interview with an FBI agent overseeing the Hunter Biden probe and lawmakers. FBI agent Thomas Sobochinsky pushed back on statements by now special counsel David Weiss that he did not have authority to charge Hunter Biden. Sobochinsky suggests that he agrees with IRS whistleblowers that Weiss plotted on his decision to charge Hunter Biden, plotted being P-L-O-D-D-E-D. He took his time. From Russell Dye, a spokesman for the Judiciary Committee Chair Jordan, he says Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler have, have been wholly consistent throughout their disclosures to Congress, and the only people who haven't are people like David Weiss, Merrick Garland, and their liberal cronies. And that is true. That is true. I did see an article. I didn't grab this for today's show, but I did see something over this recently. Um, I think I talked about it on the Devolution Power maybe two weeks ago that there's a good case to be made. I think it was in, it was in the Federalist. So I think it was Molly Hemingway, perhaps. think it was um that it seems like the letter that was signed by weiss that was sent in june that contradicted other information from and testimony from merrick garland kind of wondering if that was written for david weiss and that's why there's this conflict where where weiss garland and statements by DOJ, letters, responses to the investigators in the House don't match up as far as what Weiss's authority was and whether he was denied, whether he, one, whether he ever asked to be special counsel, two, whether he was offered it or denied it or whatever, and then whether he could bring charges or not, how, what, is, what was the scope of his authority, all of these things, the inconsistencies there, it seems to be that Garland and DOJ are saying one thing and then Weiss is Weiss is according to the whistleblowers what they testified to internally uh what they experienced internally and then what is in that letter that was sent by Weiss to the house investigators that's where the conflict is and I I'm thinking that Weiss didn't pin that letter I'm thinking that was written by the office of legal counsel and he just signed it or they signed it for him. Um, and that's where it comes in. But it is absolutely true that Shapley and Ziegler have been completely consistent. And I don't think we would be this far along if not for them. I don't think that Weiss would be a special counsel if not for them. And I'm wondering if they've turned over anything else. If you remember from their hearing, uh, which we covered live on Badlands Media, um, at the, they said several times in that meeting to, in response to questions they got from House investigators, that they had more information they could give. They had more documents and more testimony they could give on the whatever the question was, but it had to take a certain path. They couldn't turn it over directly to the oversight committee. 
if I understood it correctly. They first have to turn it over to House Ways and Means. And then House Ways and Means has to, the committee has to vote to turn it over to the oversight. I believe is how I understood it. It's been enough time. It's been like a month or so since they appeared. So I'm wondering if Shapley and Ziegler have turned over more evidence against the Biden crime family, more evidence of their experience with the Weiss investigation and in other investigations to the House Ways and Means Committee. And we might see that production soon. Um, something to watch for. I haven't heard anything from them recently, and I'm expecting to. Those guys are heroes. And yeah, uh, shout out to them. Thankful for them. All right. Something else that stood out to me. Hunter Biden's firm and Vice President Biden's office exchanged over a thousand emails. This is from September 1st. This is a couple weeks ago. But again, we're catching up. New records released by the National Archives and Record Administration revealed that Hunter Biden's firm, which remember, NARA had already said that they had 5,400 emails or thereabouts that connected to aliases, to pseudonym names that Biden was using. In those they found that Hunter Biden's firm, Rosemont Seneca, exchanged over a thousand emails with the office of then Vice President Joe Biden. How I think that right there, like if you have any liberal friends or normies who are buying the line that, yeah, Hunter had some shady business dealings, but that doesn't have anything to do with Joe Biden, his dad. Bring up these, bring up these emails. There's a thousand of them. At least 861 emails were sent or received by the office of the vice president. Not a fake one, not a pseudonym, not Joe Biden's personal or a staffer of Joe Biden, but the office of the vice president during the time period of January 2011 and December 2013. And over 200 more emails remain hidden due to the Biden White House citing executive privilege. Quote, release would disclose confidential advice between the president and his advisors or between such advisors. All right. So this statement right there is, well, don't miss the admission here, guys. Don't miss the admission that is implicit with that, that statement by NARA. They're telling you that releasing some of these emails is going to disclose advice that was contained within emails between the office of the vice president and Hunter Biden's firm, Rosemont Seneca, which tells you right. The NARA just said with this line right here, NARA just said that the office of the vice president and Rosemont Seneca were exchanging advice and talking about the president and his advisors. So it's an admission that they're inextricably linked with everybody knows. Everybody knows that even the Democrats know that everybody knows what's going on here. It's just a matter of whether or not they're willing to admit it. Some are still playing cover up. Some are moving to Overton's goalpost. I see that being mentioned. Good morning, Jay and Maggie Buster Lou. 
Snarky Des, good to see you. Zilosophy, it was great to meet you in person at the Badlands event. This is a huge admis admission right here. Huge admission. Shout out to the America First Legal Foundation, which is getting so much of this stuff. Um, also, where's Eric Schwerin? Where is Eric Schwerin? Has he testified yet? Surely he will soon. I already mentioned 5,400 emails coming out um, under Biden's pseudonyms. Gateway Pundit had this article showing this message in particular I wanted to highlight. Uh, this is from May 26, 2016. Hunter Biden was included in an email regarding Joe Biden's upcoming call, upcoming call with Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko. The call was scheduled for 9 a.m. on May 27th with an, with an 8.45 advanced prep. Joe Biden was repeatedly denied. Ha, he has denied he had anything to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings. But the Oversight Committee chairman has reported that two emails sent from Biden aide John Flynn, no relation to General Flynn, to then Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden on May 27th and June 15th. This email released today by Gateway Pundit on May 26, 2016 was sent to Joe Biden's secret email account. So one of his pseudonyms, it went to Robert L. Peters, CC'd Hunter Biden, and it says boss, and it's from John Flynn. So John Flynn is messaging the pseudonym account, Robert L. Peters. He is CC'ing Hunter Biden in it, and he writes boss, 8.45 a.m. prep for 9 a.m. phone call with President Poroshenko. Then we're off to Rhode Island for infrastructure event and then Wilmington for UDEL commencement. Nate will have your draft remarks delivered later tonight or your press clips in the morning. So this is, understand that the executive office of the president slash office of the vice president, Stafford, John S. Flynn, alerted Joe Biden through a pseudonym email and Hunter Biden to the to this phone call between Poroshenko and Biden back on May 26, 2016. If Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's affairs did not mingle at all while he was vice president, then why is an EOP slash OVP staffer letting them both know that Poroshenko was going to be on a phone call with Biden? I mean, if I get an email and like it's addressed to my wife and then CCs me and it's telling me about a business phone call she's going to have at some time, I'm going to be asked my wife, why am I being included on this, right? Am I, what do I need to know? Why do I need to know about this phone call? And it's obvious why in this, in this one right here, it's obvious why. Because Hunter Biden has all these business dealings in Ukraine. And the whole game is that U.S. policy is massaged and maneuvered and structured in a way that benefits Ukraine. And then that benefit gets paid to Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. This is the swamp. This is the swamp.
All right, I saw, I think I've missed some rants and stuff, so I want to grab them. I want to grab them real quick. What time is it? Oh, okay, cool. It's 11. Okay. Philosophy says, understanding is greater than reacting. TV is back. This concept has saved me many times on the battlefield over the last year. Thank you for your service. I am, I am privileged to do this and it is a pleasure to do it. You're welcome, Zilosophy. And, uh, yeah, I took the opportunity at GART to explain that where I came up with that. If anybody's watching and doesn't know, I came up with that expression of understanding is greater than reacting after, uh, sharing articles with folks on, uh, through social and telegram and other places and noticing how a lot of, a lot of people in MAGA and in the Anon community would have a reaction to the headline and to the first paragraph in the article. And they would miss the point of the article because they would just react to it first. And so, and I started, it's, I started noticing how a lot of us, and it's not, it's not necessarily our fault. The media wants us to be like this. Okay. So it, it's a psyop. The media specifically wants us to react both the media on the left and the right. They want us to react emotionally to the headlines and to the, the leading paragraph, because when you're emotional, when you react emotionally, you throw out logic and discernment. So and you can't help it. It's your brain is either in a very emotional mode or a logical mode. It, it, it's not very good at being a hybrid of both. So they do that on purpose and it means that you miss, you can miss some valuable information. So I came up with that expression because of that experience. And I'm glad I did because it, I, it's, it's a message to me too. Um, I definitely get caught up in reacting as well. So we all, we all can learn from that, I think. And yeah, that's where it comes from. Um, it helps me too, man. S. Jones, thank you for the rant. I'm glad to be back. Music and Fiction, good morning. Also good morning to Mermaid Miss K. Uh, Music and Fiction says, glad to see you back. Gart 3 is going to be lit, and I will be there. Awesome. Music and Fiction will be there. Um, so Gart 3, the Great American Reawakening Tour Part 3, is going to be in California, um, if you don't know. Grab... Let me grab the link. This gives me a, a the occasion the uh opportunity to bring something up too. So that I want to bring up with you guys. Here we go. So over at badlandsmedia.tv. So if you go to badlandsmedia.tv, that's where you can find the marketplace, which has all sorts of different businesses on it that have signed up to be there. And so if you're shopping for a product, you might go to the Badlands Marketplace first and then search it for whatever that product is to see if there's a America first patriotic company making it already and then avoid going to big box stores or Amazon or something else. Just check here first, if you would. And it'd be better. I think we can all agree it's better to buy from uh, from patriotic American companies than buying from these big box stores that don't have our interest in mind. Uh, but also you can go to events. 
And in events page, you can see our past events, which you can get virtual tickets if you want to watch the entire event uh, from last weekend. This is where you get the virtual ticket. But our next event is in Irvine, California on January 11th through 14th. I will be there. Tickets are on sale right here. And I'm not sure who else will be there. I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of California people uh, in the chat, but like Mermaid, Jatriot, Music and Fiction, uh, Von Hitch. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this event. And then the GART 4 is going to be next summer. And it's going to be central, central U.S. region. So looking forward to it. Now, what I wanted to bring up real quick with you guys, um, and it's not happening right now. This is a possibility. Okay, this is a possibility. Um, John, John Harold, really wants me to move my show over to Badlands and do my show, this show right here, on Badlands in the mornings and no changes. It wouldn't change anything about what I do. It would just be that it's, it's streamed on Badlands instead of being streamed on my own channel. And if I do that, then what's in it for me is a larger audience that it streams to. And then also the arrangements he has with advertisers would like packages of advertisers would then be presented to me. So I would be able to put those advertisers on my show. And I'm thinking about doing it. Um, one idea I have is um, one idea I'm thinking about is doing my regular show on Badlands Monday through Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning, and then maybe doing a show that's only on my own channel. That's like uh, either a Q and a or a um, something unique to my channel. Uh, I'm kicking around the idea. So I don't want to abandon this channel that you're watching this on right now. Um, what I'd rather do is have some shows on Badlands and then some shows on my own channel. So I'm kicking that around and I didn't want it to come as a surprise. I, so I thought I'd go ahead and tell you guys that, that this is a, a possibility and it'd still be the same show. It would just be on Badlands instead of being on my own channels. Uh, but I don't, if I do that, I want to come up with something unique that's just on my own channel. So kicking that around, thinking about it, and um, yeah, we'll see what happens. I'm probably going to do it because um, it makes a lot of sense for me, um, but I, didn't, I don't want it to be a surprise for y'all when it does happen. Um, I have been assured I can do my same show. Um, And I would be competing a bit. We talked about competing against Badlands Daily, which I know some people watch, but Badlands Daily is like a news aggregate show. And what I do is different from that. So I don't think we're really competing for the same audience, um, although there is crossover. Um, so we, me and John talked about that, and we think it would be just fine. Um, so, all right, Mimi of 10, thank you very much for the Rumble rant. Very much appreciate that. Scroll, scroll. Buster Lou, thank you. It is good to be back. I too am comfy AF. Got philosophy. All right. Liz Jen, good morning. Uh, they said they enjoyed attending GART virtually, but these morning streams are their favorite. 
Hey, I don't don't say that, man. I miss I miss Rush. That's a huge compliment. I can't accept that. I miss Rush so much. Uh, thank you very much for the rant. I appreciate it. So, um, yeah. All right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Gustav, that's right. Vigilant News streams on their own, um, on both on their own and on Badlands. That's right. So, um, I'm kicking it around. Uh, John kind of surprised me with it, but he's kind of, I mean, not really surprised me. He's, he's, he's thrown that comment out a few times that you should be, why don't you come do it over here? Why don't you come do it over there? But, uh, we had a more serious conversation about it, um, over the weekend. So, all right. And over on Pilled, thank you guys for watching on Pilled. I see someone said that they had some sound and video blipping out for a few seconds. Hope it's working over there. I know that a few times when I've streamed to Pill uh, or to Foxhole recently, um, it seems like the stream works for about an hour and then stops. And I, I don't know if that has anything to do with me or, or what, but I have seen that happen a few times. Hopefully that's not what is happening now. All right. We got a few more news items to cover. Indivisible Value says Gart was incredible. The Devolution Power Hour was worth the price of admission. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was great talking to you, man. Um, that's it. Yes, yes, that's absolutely it. Um, instead of trust but verify, it has to be don't trust, just verify. Yes, sir. Um, so, all right. Thank you all very much. Let's see what else we can get into. Um, I did the buying crime family update. I got everything in that, right? Yeah, I did. There's more, there's so much more going on, but, um, I'm going to skip it. All right. I, I think I want to end on the impeachment inquiry. Possibly. Let me grab this case. Yeah, I think I'm going to end on the impeachment inquiry. All right. Let's go back to some some new stuff now that I've done personal update. Back on September 7th, something happened that I have been predicting would happen for a long time. If you've been watching my show since November then you know that I have been saying that Ryan Salame or Salame or Salame or Solame, whatever, he was going to get indicted. I've been saying it this whole time that he was the only exec from FTX that had been left out. Ryan Salame was the guy who dealt with GOP stuff. He was the contact like in their scheme of election influence and uh, campaign fraud. Uh, they had, they had Ryan be their point man to the GOP. He even met with, I think Don Jr. at one point. Um, well, last week he pled guilty. Suddenly nobody knew this was coming until they saw his attorneys and the prosecutors for FTX, um, in, in Manhattan. And then the rumor started, uh, Ryan Salami pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to make unlawful campaign contributions and defraud the, the FC, FEC. 
And two, he pled guilty to a count of conspiracy to operate an unlicensed money transmitting business. There's the superseding information right there. So this is an agreement that's been in the works for a while, okay? This has been going on in the background, and they've been negotiating with Salame. They probably want him to testify. I'm sure they want him to testify against SBF, a.k.a. Samuel Bankman-Fried, all right? So check this out. These are all the people that have pled guilty now. Caroline Ellison, Ryan Salame, Nishad Singh, and Gary Wang. They've these all four are executives that were high up in FTX slash Alameda. They've all pled guilty while Samuel Bankman Freed is sitting in a prison cell waiting for his trial on October 3rd. And for all the blackpilling that that gets done over SBF and FTX. And people saying that nothing's going to happen to him. You guys, do you remember how much black pilling happened over this case? Do you remember how so many people said nothing was going to happen? That they're just going to get away with it? And then they started saying that SBF has a sweetheart deal. He's at home with his family. DOJ is covering it up. They're not going to do anything about this. There, you got four guilty pleas from the execs, and you have Ryan, you have Samuel Bickman freed in prison right now. And then, you know, at each, this has like been the Overton's goalpost thing with this case, but from the other direction, with black pillars trying to tell us that nothing was happening and there was no justice in the world, right? Only they started off saying nothing was happening and they've had to Overton's goalpost it all the way to four executives have flipped and pled guilty and SBF is in prison waiting trial. Their last goalpost that they're clinging to is that DOJ didn't bring a campaign election influence charge against Bankman Freed. They had to leave it out because of their treaty with um, the Bahamas. But even with that, as I covered, I think I covered it on my last show that I did, I think. Um, but if not, whatever. DOJ said in their filing that their case is a campaign influence scheme case. They can't bring the charge against SBF because of the United States Treaty with um, with the Bahamas. And that treaty stand, says that um, because he was extradited from the Bahamas, whatever charges he's extradited on, it has the DOJ can't add to those charges. That's how it works. That's the way our treaty is with the Bahamas. And you can love it. You can hate it. Whatever. It's still the treaty. And that's what they have to go by. Oh, there we have a filing this morning or yesterday morning. Oh, SBF got denied a motion to address the judge about something. Okay. Um, where is it? Where is it? I'm going to show you. Oh, yeah. We got some sealed documents here. I don't know what they are, but we have a few. Or we say competent Bankman freed. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Huh. 
have the post schedule. Is it this one? No, that's transcript. Let me see. It might be this letter here. Nope, that has to do with the air-gapped laptop. Sealed filings. Sorry, guys, I should have already brought this up. There's the proposed jury uh, questions. Revoir dire. I guess it was further back than that. It's a short letter. This is it, I think. Maybe not. No, that's not it. All right, well, I probably shouldn't waste time digging through all these files. I mean, there's only been 250 documents filed on this freaking case since November. Um, so anyway, there's a letter in here somewhere where uh, it's a DOJ letter, and they say, even though we can't bring the charge of campaign influence, finance, whatever fraud, that is the whole point of what SBF and FTX were doing. And this is DOJ speaking. They're saying the whole point of what they were doing with this money and their scheme was to influence an election and to buy politicians. And just because we can't bring the char that specific charge against SBF doesn't mean that that isn't the whole point of this case. It's the very heart and core of what FTX and SBF were doing. It was their why. And it will feature in the case. So for all the black pillars moaning about how SBF isn't getting that charge. For all the moaning about him not getting that charge, the, uh, the government said it doesn't matter because we're still bringing all that same evidence. That is the whole point of our case and the whole message of it. So he's, he's not getting... He's off from that specific charge, but it's not like his scheme isn't the whole point of this trial. I really wanted to find it and show it to you. Probably would have been a good idea for me to grab it last night and then say, set it aside for this show, huh? All right, so anyway. SBF. Headed to trial October 3rd. It'll be in federal court. There won't be cameras. I'll be watching Inner City Press, his Twitter feed, X feed, for information about what happens in the court. Um, he's probably the best. I'm sure he'll be following it uh, very, very closely. So, um, yeah, it's a campaign finance scheme. I really think the targets are the parents. I, I think the who DOJ really wants to get at is or are SBF's parents because nobody believes SBF was the mastermind of this thing. Who was the mastermind? Makes a lot of sense to me that it was his parents. Um, maybe we'll find out from his um, former executives that are, have flipped against him and are going to testify against him for DOJ.
right. This is a case I don't know much about, but I felt like it was worth mentioning it because it's going around. And uh, um, I saw it's, it relates to General Flynn. So prosecutors drop foreign agent case against Trump transition advisor. This has to do with Bajan Rafikian or Rafikian. He's a California businessman who worked with Flynn. The Justice Department has quietly abandoned one of the last prosecutions stemming from investigations into alleged foreign influence over Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. In a court filing on Monday, prosecutors indicated they're giving up their long-running quest to convict Bajan Rafikian, a California businessman and former business partner of Trump ally Michael Flynn, on charges of acting as an unregistered foreign agent for Turkey, amid Trump's successful White House bid seven years ago. It's a bitter pill for prosecutors who convinced a jury in Alexandria, Virginia, to return two felony guilty verdicts against Rafikian. He's also known as just Kian. Following a week-long trial in 2019 and only about four hours of deliberations, Rafikian chose not to take the stand during that trial. However, U.S. District Judge, uh, Court Judge Anthony Tringa, do you guys remember him? That was the judge, I believe, in the Danchenko trial, wasn't it? I think it was. I could be misremembering, but I think it was. Who presided over the trial soon became convinced that the guilty verdicts were not justified by the evidence prosecutors presented. He set aside the verdicts two months later, prompting years of additional litigation that included two trips to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. The notice the Justice Department submitted in federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, signaling an end to the case, was terse and offered little insight into the decision to throw in the towel. But it said the appellate court stance played a role in prosecutors opting to give it up. After carefully considering the Fourth Circuit's recent decision in this case and the principles of federal prosecution, the United States believes it is not in the public interest to pursue the case against defendant Bajan Rafikian further. Prosecutor from the Justice National Security Division and U.S. Attorney's Office in Alexandria wrote. DOJ spokesperson declined to comment. Rafikian's attorneys hailed the move but were lamented the years their client had spent battling the case. Rafikian has been the target of baseless federal prosecutions for the past five years only because he made the poor decision to be in business with Michael Flynn. Along with his family and his lawyers, Bajan is particularly grateful to the court for its unwavering commitment to equity and for ensuring justice would be done. Back in 2021, Richmond-based Fourth Circuit sided with the prosecutors and overturned Tringa's ruling, throwing out Rafikian's convictions, but left the door open for the judge and appointee of W. Bush to grant the defendant a new trial. He got one. Tringa did not did just that on March 22nd of or March of 2022, holding that evidence introduced at trial would allow only the weakest inference, quote unquote, that Rafikian acted as at Turkey's behest as he and Flynn carried out a plan to build the case for the U.S. government to deport a Turkish cleric and dissident, a man named Fathula Gulen. When prosecutors returned to the Fourth Circuit, the court issued a 2-1 decision in May of this year, allowing Tringa's new trial ruling to stand. Last July, at a hearing following that loss, prosecutors indicated they planned to proceed with retrial, and Trenga set the trial for this October 30th. So this guy was headed for trial 
right before Halloween this year. Rafa Kian, who served as a Senate-confirmed member of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation on a nomination from Bush, was an advisor to the Trump transition team in 2016, but also worked as Flynn's partner in a consulting firm called Flynn Intel Group. Initial stages of the foreign agent investigation into Flynn and Rafakian's work related to Turkey were handled by federal prosecutors in Alexandria, but that inquiry was later folded into special counsel Robert Mueller's broader probe. The office eventually sent the case back to the Alexandria-based prosecutors for trial. Rafakian's saga also became an illustration of the often haphazard application of justice during the Trump years. Now there's some spin for you from Politico. In 2017, Flynn cut a deal with Mueller's team to plead guilty. Blah, 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 blah. Um, And end his potential criminal exposure in a variety of matters, including his firm's $850,000 contract for the pro-Turkey work while he served as the top foreign policy advisor to candidate Trump. Flynn, who served as the NSA for 24 days at the outset, blah, 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 we're aware of that. He had been expected to offer testimony, Flynn was, that would incriminate his former partner in a scheme to avoid disclosing that Flynn Intel Group's lobbying and public relations effort was actually directed and controlled by Turkish government officials. However, just weeks before the trial, an acrimonious row broke out between prosecutors and a new set of Flynn's attorneys. That led to an abrupt decision to, by the government to drop Flynn as a witness and instead declare him a co-conspirator. So don't miss that. They, DOJ, because of the, the set of attorneys that Flynn previously had, DOJ was under the impression they would have Flynn as a cooperating witness against Kian. But then Flynn got new attorneys and that all fell apart. The reversal came just after Flynn signed up a new combative defense defense attorney, Sidney Powell. After a review, General Barr moved to drop the prosecution of Flynn. Eventually, the judge agreed. That'd be Judge Sullivan, right? But there was no similar move for Rafa Kian, and the proceeding against him continued. I don't know this, guys. I I don't know. But we do know that Flynn is an asset. We do know that Flynn has served as an asset for intelligence agencies and for DOJ. Did Flynn catch Rafa Kian? Did Flynn act as an asset and and catch Rafa Kian? Seems possible. If so, then that would explain this quote from Rafa Kian, Rafa Kian's uh, attorneys earlier on that I read that struck me as odd. I don't know if it struck you as odd, but right here from Rafa Kian's uh, attorney, Mr. Rafa Kian has been the target of baseless federal prosecution for the past five years only because he made the poor decision to be in business with Michael Flynn. I wonder if Flynn caught this guy. All right, so there's the review. As, and that would explain why 
charges were dropped against Flynn. The prosecution was dropped against him, but it wasn't dropped against Rafa Kian back then. As the then president continued to fight his loss at the polls in 2020, Flynn scored broadly where Barton, blah, 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 blah. However, Trump did not pardon Rafa Kian. He pardoned Flynn. Hmm. In the new filing, prosecutors called for the case against Rafa Kian to be dismissed with prejudice, meaning it could not be refiled. The dismissal requires Tringa's approval, but such motions are routinely granted. Technically, the foreign agent case brought in 2018 will remain open even after the charge against Rafa Kian are dropped. A Turkish native, Akim Alptekin, was indicted alongside Rafikian and accused of using a shell company to act as an intermediary for the Turkish government. On social media, Alpatekin has maintained his innocence and painted the case as a form of persecution, but he has never come to the U.S. to face the charges. I don't know. Maybe this guy is completely innocent. I don't know. Maybe these charges never should have been brought, but it stands out to me that after reviewing Flynn's case, these charges were maintained against Rafa Kian. And then when Trump pardoned Flynn, he didn't pardon Rafa Kian. Now, after all this time, DOJ is dropping the case against Rafa Kian. I, don't, I think because they can't prove it. They can't prove it. Or or maybe, maybe he's agreed to uh, help them out with something. I don't know. But Jesse Banal had some comments on it. And I like him. So let's see what he has to say. For the first time in far too long, we can celebrate the victory of the rule of law. Yesterday, the DOJ did what it should have done years ago. It dismissed the frivolous charges against Bajan Rafakian. The cases should have been ended when Judge Trenga dismissed the charges almost three years ago. Instead, the government drugged Bajan and his family through years of dubious additional litigation and financial burden. Finally, they did what was legally appropriate all along and dismissed the case. This is yet another example of a political prosecution by an out-of-control, biased Department of Justice. Far too many people. For too many people, the process is the punishment even when cases are won. The lives of innocent Americans have been destroyed. America must return to its constitutional values. Reform must be made to permanently put an end to political prosecutions to save our democracy. So, if banal is to be taken, is to be believed and taken at face value, then... Bajan was always innocent and this case should have been dropped long ago. That may well be. I really don't know. I really don't know. But I thought it was interesting. Um, where was this? Oh, yeah. I need... I put that bookmark in the wrong one. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Okay, I got that. I mentioned the Google case... Just real quick, this is a massive case. Um, I know I talked about it on this show before, many months ago. It might have been in 2022. It's been a long time. Uh, so this case with Google, I'm not going to spend much time on it because I want to get to the uh, impeachment inquiry. I think this would be the most, like some of the biggest news in the country right now, if not for so much else going on. Um, but Google used its, it's not just about antitrust in the sense that uh, 
Google was pressuring its app to be installed in all Windows Explorer's apps and or applications, and they wanted it to come on computers. And um, they they even made it where uh, Apple decided not to pursue developing its own search engine because Google had such a, a powerful presence in that space. But this also has to do with how they gather data on individuals and um, marketed and catered um, and deployed political messaging. Um, they use their data to figure out how to manipulate people's perceptions of politics. And this could have some pretty far reaching implications on data that can be gathered about individuals and how ads are targeted to individuals. Um, so this is a huge case and um, it's not just about search engines, although that's what is going to be a big focus of it. Google's contracts ensure, this is a quote, Google's contracts ensure that rivals cannot match the search quality ad monetization, especially on phones. Through this feedback loop that Google set up, this wheel has been turning for more than 12 years and it always turns to Google's advantage. Google counters that it faces a wide range of competition despite commanding about 90% of the internet search market. Its rivals, the company argues, range from search engines such as Microsoft Bing and websites like Amazon and Yelp, where consumers can post questions about what to buy or where to go. There are lots of ways users access the web other than default search engines, but Google is everywhere. Federal pro federal lawyers and state attorneys general will try... This is federal guys, and this is also AGs from multiple states, are going to try to prove Google rigged the market in its favor by locking its search engine in as the default choice on a plethora of places and devices. Google says it faces a wide range of competition, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Google could be hobbled if the trial ends in concessions that undercut its power. One possibility is that the company could be forced to stop paying Apple and other companies to make Google the default search engine on smartphones and computers. Now imagine what happens in the Great Awakening if Google can no longer force devices and software manufacturers and websites to make Google the default search engine. Imagine what that does for the flow of information when you remove Google as an automatic filter and curator of the information that is returned in searches. Iowa Trump, good morning. She says it's 48 states and Texas is in the lead in this case. Wow. Wow. I'm going to have to uh, find out what um, what else I found on this case, but I remember something about political advertising and how they were manipulating searches and, and uh, political adverts and using user data to make sure you only found certain things and you only saw certain political ads. Um, it's been too many months for me to recall. This is a huge case. It could have a, a massive impact. RL Skeeter, good morning. Thank you very much for the rant. And Easy Three Cents, thank you for the cookie over on Pilled. Much appreciated. 
this case is one to watch. I don't know how much attention I can pay attention to it with all the other cases I'm watching, but I'm just I'm definitely going to jump on over to this case and uh, give y'all an update every once in a while on it. Okay. Also, another big story. Barely had time to look at it, but it turns out that J.P. Morgan flagged over a billion dollars in suspicious act transactions that were linked to Epstein, which the bank then reported to the U.S. government. This is according to the U.S. Virgin Islands lawsuit. Quote, J.P. Morgan was a full-service bank for Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking, said the attorney for the U.S. Virgin Islands. The suspicious activity was detailed in a 2019 filing to the U.S. Department of Treasury. A U.S. Virgin Islands attorney told a federal court in Manhattan last Thursday the filing was made after Epstein died in a Manhattan jail cell a month after his arrest on sex charges. Epstein had been with the bank since the late 1990s through 2013 when they finally cut ties with them. Epstein notoriously trafficked victims to the U.S. Virgin Islands. J.P. Morgan denies that it let Epstein's activity slide and says it reported around 150 cash transactions to a federal regulator between 2002 and 2013. Last month, the U.S. Virgin Islands told the judge in the case that the bank facilitated over $1.1 million in payments from Epstein to girls or women, many of whom had Eastern European surnames. Over $320,000 of payments were made to numerous individuals for whom J.P. Morgan had no previously identified payments. The bank claims that a rel- claims that it's a re- wait, 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 wait. The bank was accused of failing to disclose the payments until after the end of discovery. Uh, the bank claims that's not relevant because the U.S. Virgin Islands doesn't have legal standing to claim J.P. Morgan obstructed the investigation. Da 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 da. The only reason J.P. Morgan. Um, after 16 years, reported the $1 billion in suspicious transactions was because he was arrested and then dead, said the U.S. Virgin Islands prosecutor. So that's a billion dollars in suspicious transactions. This host- hotly disputed, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So. We're back around to a question that comes up all the time with Epstein. Who within the government was protecting him? What are their names? And why were they protecting Epstein? Because now it's not just, eh, yeah, we kind of knew about it. Everybody kind of knew that he was into some kinky stuff, maybe some inappropriate stuff, maybe some illegal stuff. But if it's true that J.P. Morgan flagged over a billion dollars in suspicious activities and they communicated that to the appropriate authorities and yet nothing was done then that implicates them why you know if it's a few maybe you could argue they didn't rise to the level but over a billion dollars in suspicious transfers who was covering up for epstein and why All right, let's get to impeachment. And this will be our final topic. Is the yeah, okay, there we go. 
Let me turn this audio on because we're going to listen to McCarthy for a moment. One of the things before I play this, one of the things that happened at the Badlands event in Cocoa Beach, uh, John Harold kept trying to put me on the on the spot with a few questions, and uh, one of the ones it was a question from the chat, I believe. They ask, like, who are two politicians in each chamber that you really like right now, or something like that, or you think are doing a good job. It was something like that. And he put it to me because he knew I would give a spicy answer. Um, and so I decided to just jump right in and just jump on the landmine and say that one of the people that I look at who I think is doing a good job is Kevin McCarthy. And of course, you're not supposed to say that right now. You're not supposed to say that. No, no, no. If you're MAGA or if you're a non, you're supposed to hate Kevin McCarthy and you're supposed to think of him as milk toast, weak, rhino, Frank Luntz roommate, Ukrainian simp. You're supposed to just bash Kevin McCarthy, right? But I can't help but notice that Kevin McCarthy and Trump seem to work together a lot. And I can't help but notice that President Trump and McCarthy right after right after uh January 20th of 2021 like 2 weeks later, 3 weeks later, the first elected official to visit Trump at Mar-a-Lago after January 2021 was Kevin McCarthy. And Trump put out a statement and said, Kevin McCarthy and I are working together to take back the House in 2022. And they did. And they took the House back. And since then, since the House has been taken back, we have all these committees doing these investigations. We've had all these hearings, um, the rules changes that were agreed to. Uh, back in January of this year were excellent for the GOP and for the House Freedom Caucus. I mean, I, I think everybody agrees that the House Freedom Caucus, uh, the America first element within the House, has more power than they've ever had before, right? And we had that battle for the Speaker, which I completely failed to follow my own advice of understanding is greater than reacting and was pretty annoyed at the theater that was going on because I'm over here like Kevin McCarthy is Trump's guy. Why are all these people objecting to Kevin McCarthy? He's Trump's guy. This is who Trump endorsed. But post facto, I understood. Post facto, I understood that that theater had to play out and it had to, it had to play out because the America first, the MAGA group, the freedom caucus within the house has to be seen as separate from Kevin McCarthy. And McCarthy has to ride the line between the rhinos and the, the weak GOP and the GOP establishment. He's got to have one foot in that camp and he has to be able to sit at a dinner table with them and talk and talk shop. Right. But, and, and be a, 
be someone they look to as someone who actually listens to what they have to say and has some empathy for where they're coming from. But he also has to be able to confer and work with the America First group of Republicans, right? And he has to be in between them. And if they want anything done, it takes, there's only so many, like the margin is really close, right? They, we barely have a majority in the house. So all of these different groups and in, in the GOP in the house have to work together um, to get anything done, which means Kevin has to have good relations with all of them. If Trump wants him gone, It'll happen. Trump is, he's Trump's guy. And the only reason Kevin McCarthy is Speaker of the House is because he's Trump's guy. And now, after I made this comment, I, I talked about how Kevin McCarthy, I think, is doing a, a good job in the House, but we're supposed to dislike him and say that he's not. Um, and make no mistake, guys, if, if Kevin McCarthy was working for the GOP establishment and the swamp and was only paying lip service to the MAGA crowd and to Trump, then he would shut down these committees. He would stand, he would get in the way as much as possible of oversight and judiciary and the house ways and means. He would do backroom stuff to try and get them to back off of their investigation into the Biden crime family. Right. And we're not seeing any of that happen. So I think sometimes it's in what they don't do really tells you who they're working for and what they're working towards. And Kevin McCarthy isn't standing in the way of these investigations. Um, so besides that, uh, Kevin McCarthy, I was reminded of this at GART after that event or after that, that particular session where I said that someone came up to me and I can't remember exactly who it was. I want to say, I want to say, I have his card over here. Where'd his card go? I have his card. Where'd it go? I can't find it right now. Anyway, someone came up to me after I had said all that, um, and they told me, they reminded me that um, Kevin McCarthy was Trump's original pick for speaker back in 2016. It was Kevin McCarthy that Trump was pushing to be House Speaker, and it ended up being Ryan. But it was McCarthy who Trump wanted. I think they go back quite a ways. Anyway, people have been asking for this impeachment inquiry to start. And it's, it, they've been pressuring, saying, do something, do something. People have been posting all the time, yelling at McCarthy, yelling at the House Republicans to actually do something. We're tired of seeing these letters. The letters don't matter, which they do matter. But uh, everybody's like, ah, we're so upset. Well, now we finally got this. So let's listen to what Kevin McCarthy had to say when he announced that he was directing this impeachment inquiry. I don't think y'all are hearing that, are you? What is going on here? Hold up. This is a super pro show. If this is your first time watching, uh, this is just how we do things. Think I got it now. Months 
that we were gone in the weeks, House Republicans have uncovered serious and credible allegations into President Biden's conduct. Taken together, these allegations paint a picture of a culture of corruption. Now, here's what we know so far. Through our investigations, we have found that President Biden did lie to the American people about his own knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings. Eyewitnesses have testified that the President joined on multiple phone calls and had multiple interactions. Dinners resulted in cars and millions of dollars into his son's and his son's business partners. We know that bank records show that nearly $20 million in payments were directed to the Biden family members and associates through various shale companies. The Treasury Department alone has more than 150 transactions involving the Biden family and other business associates that were flagged as suspicious activity by U.S. banks. Even a trusted FBI informant. Real quick, thinking back to the Trump impeachment, did they have any transactions flagged? Were there any SAR, SARs on Trump transactions back then? I'm trying to remember. When they launched their impeachment inquiry against Trump, did the Democrats have anything close to what Republicans have right now? I don't think they had any flag transactions. I could be misremembering. Because I can think of a couple transactions that could have been flagged that Trump was involved in. But already, just one minute and 20 seconds into this thing, the list that that McCarthy has given is so much more substantial than anything they ever had against Trump. Yeah, they had a, they had a bad phone call. That's what they had. <laughs> they had a bad phone call, and they had... Um, a neocon agency doofus uh, named Vinman. Um, and then they had Schiff saying, just saying they had all sorts of secret stuff they were going to bring out later, but never did. <laughs> has alleged a bribe to the Biden family. Biden used his official office to coordinate with Hunter Biden's business partners about Hunter's role in Burisma, a Ukrainian energy company. Finally, despite these serious allegations, it appears that the president's family has been offered special treatment by Biden's own administration. Treatment that not otherwise would have received if they were not related to the president. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption and they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. That's why today I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. This logical next step will give our committees the full power to gather all the facts and answers for the American public. That's exactly what we want to know, the answers 
I believe the President would want to answer these questions and allegations as well. This effort will be led by Chairman James Comer at the Committee on Oversight in coordination with Chairman Jim Jordan for Judiciary Committee and Chairman Jason Smith on Ways and Means. All right, so with McCarthy saying that, that this this is going to be this inquiry is going to be led by those guys Comer Gordon I mean Comer Jordan and Smith from Oversight Judiciary and House Ways and Means those are the key players in all this evidence we've been gathered in the past six months or so right and if Kevin McCarthy was not Trump's guy if Kevin McCarthy was the swamp monster that we're supposed to believe he is according to the media on the right and influencers in conservative MAGA communities. Do you think any of this would be happening? He could have gone like half, like a half measure, but then appointed somebody else to lead this inquiry, right? But instead he gave it to the pit bulls that have been on it this whole time. I think that tells you where Kevin McCarthy stands on this. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, the evidence, everything that Kevin McCarthy just said is somebody wrote in chat while ago, everything Kevin McCarthy just said, we have documents, testimony, emails, all sorts of things open source intelligence, all sorts of things that back up every single thing he is claiming here on his way to announcing uh, this impeachment inquiry. I do not make this decision lightly. And regardless of your party or who you voted for, these facts should concern all Americans. The American people deserve to know that the public offices are not for sale and that the federal government is not being used to cover up the actions of a politically associated family. Now, I would encourage the President and his team to fully cooperate with this investigation in the interests of transparency. We are committed to getting the answers for the American public. Nothing more, nothing less. We will go wherever the evidence takes us. Thank you very much. All right, so I do wonder if the swamp was expecting this. Surely they were. Surely the uh, surely they were. But you got to think that the the GOP establishment uh, really didn't want this. I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on it. Um, we're in a really unique uh, the the way things are on the battlefield in the House right now is a unique situation where. There's this impeachment inquiry starting up that has there is the result of months of disclosure by House and Ways and Means, by Justice or Judiciary Committee, by the Oversight Committee. Um, it's a result of multiple inf information operations, such as the Hunter Biden laptop, Marco Polo's work, all of these things have it's all been building up to this inquiry. <clears throat> And it's being launched right as Joe Biden's son is about to be charged again 
by a special counsel. It's launched as um, Trump is under indictment, multiple indictments. It's launched right as we're switching into 2024 campaign cycle. It's launched when we have the debt ceiling fight coming up, I believe it is, right? So, and there's talk of a government shutdown, which the Democrats and their media are pretty much always able to spin in a way that is as, that is detrimental to Republicans, even though Republicans are right about the debt ceiling um, and the spending bills and whatnot. Like we have a spending fight coming up. We also have FISA 702 reauthorization fight. And there's a lot of back and forth about that. And the most important thing about it is that FISA 702 has been used to abuse our civil rights and it needs to be constrained. Even if you believe it is a necessary thing, um, that apparatus, and I think it is necessary, it still needs more restrictions on it. And Horowitz and Durham have proved with their reports that there is massive abuse of 702. Uh, so for all the talk of Republicans and Democrats saying it need to be reauthorized, you don't hear near enough talk of it needing to be constrained and there needing to be more safeguards. Um, so McCarthy, in announcing this imp impeachment inquiry, it's interesting to consider the position he's in because this is a huge move that is going to put, I would think, well, of course, giving, giving him a lot of favor with the America First MAGA group in the House. It doesn't do him any favors with the weakest element of the GOP establishment because they're weak and they don't like these fights. They don't want any of these fights. So I'm just, I'm just, I think it's interesting that, uh, that this is, the timing of the, I think the timing of this is great, but there's a lot of fights going on. There's a lot of battles right here playing out in the house. Um, so I wonder what is going to how, how I'm wondering about Kevin McCarthy's future moves over the next six months with regards to spending 702 reauthorization and a couple other things. Um, is he so one thing I'm considering is he going is is he going along with this and um joining up with MAGA groups and giving them what they want right now on this inquiry? But then he's gonna seemingly oppose them on the next thing. I think that's something to watch for. Um wait a minute, where is this? I don't need this. There we go. And I don't need that. Hold up. Where's that other post? Where's that other one I wanted? Here we go. All right. So this account, trust is earned. Good follow over on X. Um, I really like the point he made here. And this is probably the most important thing about this, this impeachment inquiry. Launching an inquiry raises the legal authority of congressional subpoena power to its zenith, to its maximum. All the case law the Dems established investigating Trump comes back to bite them. So when you think back 
to what they did to Trump, there was a lot of stuff that happened with that impeachment inquiry and the eventual impeachment that set precedent. And there was a lot of wrangling that went on between parties trying to establish how to do things. And that, and it, it, the way what happened then has a direct effect on what is happening now and how this impeachment inquiry is going to go. And Politico pointed this out and they said how Donald Trump's DOJ gave Biden a major assist in the incoming impeachment probe. This is something to keep in mind. Joe Biden has a literal Trump card to play against the House's new impeachment inquiry. In January 2020, the Donald Trump-led Justice Department formally declared that impeachment inquiries by the House are invalid unless the chamber takes a formal vote to authorize them, which they're taking a vote on Thursday, I believe. I believe the vote's tomorrow. That opinion, issued by the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, came in response to then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's decision to launch an impeachment inquiry into Trump without initially holding a vote for it. Not only is it still in the books, it is binding on the current administration as it responds to Tuesday's announcement by Kevin McCarthy to authorize an impeachment inquiry into Biden. Again, without a vote. Quote, we conclude that the House must expressly authorize a committee to conduct an impeachment investigation and to use compulsory process in that investigation before the committee may compel the production of documents or testimony wrote Stephen Engel, then the head of DOJ's Office of Legal Counsel, backing the Trump administration's rejection of subpoenas from the Democratic congressional investigators. The House had no authorized has had not authorized such an investigation in connection with the impeachment related subpoenas issued before October 31st, 2019, and the subpoenas therefore had no compulsory effect. Engel, a Senate-confirmed Trump appointee, concluded in his 54-page opinion. Engel's opinion was aimed at diffusing an article of impeachment Democrats had filed against Trump, accusing him of obstructing the House's inquiry by encouraging his administration's officials to defy congressional subpoenas. The charge was one of two approved by the House in December 2019, setting the stage for Trump's January 2020 impeachment trial. Trump's impeachment attorneys revealed the secret DOJ opinion in papers submitted as part of their trial defense in the Senate. Now, that opinion could be could carry significant ramifications as Republicans embark on an impeachment inquiry into Biden. The investigation was escalated by McCarthy's announcement on Tuesday that the inquiry would be launched without a formal vote. It is expected to feature significant scrutiny of actions taken by the Justice Department, FBI, and IRS in relation to its investigation of Biden's son Hunter and his foreign business dealings. All three agencies would be bound by the OLC opinion. Biden, as president, would have more flexibility about whether to heed the OLC opinion, but he could simply choose to follow Trump's precedent. He also may have grounds to assert executive privilege that could simply could similarly tie up GOP investigators, claims Trump also lodged to jammed up his own inquiry. The Justice Department declined to comment. White House spokesman did not immediately respond. Engel, who signed the 2020 opinion, also declined to weigh in. If Republicans are forced to live with the Trump era precedent that their party set, so too will Democrats who once mocked them for it. 
Isn't that how it goes every time? Don't you love it? Many Biden backers ridiculed the position that an impeachment inquiry is impotent without a vote by the full House. And Republicans are sure to hammer any decision by the Biden administration or White House not to comply with the probe. But typically, Justice Department internal opinions, though they have no binding legal weight in court, are controlling on subsequent administrations unless they're revoked or superseded by new opinions. Pelosi opened the Trump impeachment inquiry on September 24, 2019, authorizing House Intel, Judiciary, and Oversight Committees to probe whether Trump abused his power when he pressured Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky to open an investigation into political rivals, including Biden. Republicans, including Trump, complained that the inquiry was invalid because Pelosi had not asked the House to take a formal vote. Then White House counsel Pat Cipollone attacked the House probe and hinted at blanket noncompliance with subpoenas precisely because they had not uh, held a formal vote. Quote, in the history of our nation, the House of Representatives has never attempted to launch an impeachment inquiry against the president without a majority of the House taking political accountability for the decision by voting to authorize such a dramatic constitutional step. That's what Cipollone wrote on October 8th, 2019. But it wasn't until January that the Justice Department formally backed up his position. McCarthy at the time also called the impeachment inquiry illegitimate. He had pledged as of a week ago to hold a vote if he were to go down the same path with Biden before scrapping one on Tuesday. Hmm. Six weeks after the opening, uh, six weeks after opening the inquiry, Pelosi did ask the House to take an official vote to set the terms of the impeachment inquiry. Notably, Engel wrote in the OLC opinion that the vote did little to delegitimize the inquiry because it made no effort to ratify any of the subpoenas or investigative steps that occurred prior to that vote. So I love seeing things turned around back on them. This backs up my theory that Trump and team have been purposefully setting legal precedents and precedents in all sorts of places. It's all templates. They're doing things. The moves they're making are set up in a way to eliminate future moves that his opponents could make. He's setting the guardrails. He's charting the path that these things take using himself and his team. They're taking the arrows for it. They're taking the damage. They're taking the narrative hits and other things, the monetary hits too, in order to um, set it up so that we can have some justice against others and to constrain in some areas what can be done to open things up in other areas. Um, such as FBI raids on the president's attorney. Opening a president to open things up. Um, but in other ways, constraining it. Uh, like in the Mar-a-Lago case, saying that Trump can't have all this stuff back as soon as he wants. Um, all sorts of this stuff. So right here, what they did to Trump, the way it played out then is setting up the the path that it's going to take now, what they can and cannot do. Um, all right. Oh yeah. I remember when I pulled this up, I pulled this up because this is from Jeffries, the, uh, Democrats leader. Um, I pulled this up because I wanted to point it out as an Overton goalpost. 
like this is what Jeffrey says now. Let's see how this changes in the future. So what he said is extreme MAGA Republicans, which I guess he's including McCarthy in that, have launched an illegitimate impeachment inquiry that is a kangaroo court fishing expedition and conspiracy theater all rolled into one. There is not a shred of evidence that President Joe Biden has engaged in wrongdoing. So there's an Overton's goalpost for you. Next one. There is not a shred of evidence that President Joe Biden committed an impeachable offense. Right. To me, those two sentences are already, that's already a move, right? Like here's one goalpost, but then his very next sentence is also a goalpost that actually moved the line closer to the Republicans, like, or closer to his own goal. There is not a shred of evidence that President Joe Biden has committed an impeachable offense. This is actually less than what this is. So, all right, there is not a shred of evidence that President Joe Biden has committed a crime. We'll see about that. This is an illegitimate impeachment inquiry, period, full stop. It's a waste of time. Well, so there you go. He gave you three goalposts right there. We'll see. All right. Wanted to grab this from General Flynn because at the same time this is happening, of course Matt Gates is out there attacking McCarthy because that's all Matt Gates does is attack people. <laughs> Matt Gates is such a... Uh, I'll hold back. I'll hold back because people really like Matt Gates because he says things that entertain them. But Matt Gates, I mean, that's Matt Gates is just out there like. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, Republicans just got what they wanted. The MAGA Republicans just got exactly what they wanted, which was an impeachment inquiry. And immediately Matt Gates gets up on the floor to attack Speaker McCarthy. And as much as it annoys me, I guess it's be maybe it's because I hate his hair so much because, you know, I'm a bit jealous. Um, it works. It works. That's that's right, Lynn. Uh, Lynn uh, Bertrang and Catbird Girl and Cat Girl. Good morning. Yeah, the theater works. It can't appear like Speaker McCarthy is too much in the pocket of the MAGA Republicans. Oh my God, Anner. <laughs> Anner in chat says Lego cell snap on Lego hair just like this. That's <laughs> so true. Uh, <laughs> it does. His hair does look like Lego hair, doesn't it? <laughs> um. So the theater works. Matt Gates can't get out on the floor and praise Speaker McCarthy. Neither can MTG or Lauren Boebert. They can't get out there and, and praise him. They have to appear like they're the rockest extreme bunch over here. And then you got the GOP establishment over there and McCarthy in the middle, balancing both. That's, that's how it has to be. 
Um, and Eli, Eli Crane said a motion to vacate might not pass at first, but it might before the 15th vote. And this made me think about how the GOP establishment is probably not very happy with McCarthy for launching this inquiry. And if, and if the MAGA side tries to get a motion to vacate the speakership because they're not happy with him because he doesn't fully deliver on this announcement of an inquiry, then they may launch an emotion, a motion to vacate. And eventually the GOP establishment is going to find enough reason to say, you know what? Yeah, let's get rid of McCarthy and get someone else. So we'll see. Again, an interesting showdown is getting set up where McCarthy has to play this line because of 702, because of spending bills, all this other stuff going on in the House. He's got to keep all these different camps happy um, because he's not that stable in the speakership chair, right? Um, Flynn said, this is a very powerful testament to what courage and a politician is supposed to look like. I pray others have the guts to stand up and speak up. Thank you, Matt Gates. Matt Gates. It's Speaker McCarthy. You need to give serious thought to stepping down. You might have your own district in your pocket, but the rest of the country has had enough of your lack of accomplishment as Speaker of the House. Time to step down. Now, this is mind-blowing to me. This makes no sense. This makes no sense. McCarthy just launched an impeachment inquiry, and then General Flynn is telling him it's time to step down? I don't think it was that long ago that America First Republicans were saying if Speaker McCarthy doesn't launch an impeachment inquiry, he needs to step down. He launches one, and then they double down and say it's time for him to step down. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense, right? It only it, The only way you can grok it, the only way you can figure this out and make it make sense is if it's all theater to make it seem like McCarthy is actually out of step and disconnected and not part of MAGA when in fact he is Trump's guy in Congress. And no, I'm not telling you that Speaker McCarthy is secretly a white hat. I'm telling you that he's Trump's guy. The only reason he's Speaker is because Trump wanted him to be Speaker. And if Trump didn't want this impeachment inquiry to start, it wouldn't be happening. Um, yeah. That's the only reason that makes sense, is that this is kayfabe to provide narrative shielding to Speaker McCarthy while he navigates this stuff. And that's the only thing that makes sense. Because they get what they want and then complain. Immediately complain. This is exactly what they want. And then you get the doomers, of course, who just complain no matter what. All right, guys. I was going to get into Kolomoisky, but I haven't found anything more on Kolomoisky. I created the folder here because I was going to grab some stuff to update on Kolomoisky being arrested in Ukraine. But I didn't 
I didn't find anything. So I'm going to spend today um, or this afternoon, I'm going to try and look to see if I can find anything else in Kolomoisky to bring up tonight on the Devolution Power Hour. Um, and hopefully I can find some stuff, but I don't, I don't know. There may not be anything else out there. Um, we'll see what, we'll see what happens with them. I'm hoping there's some news, but there just may not be. All right. I think I missed a rant. RL Skeeter, thank you very much for the rant. Really appreciate that. It's good to be back on the mornings. I am, I am very happy to be back. Where did, there we go. And over on Foxhole Net, folks, thank you very much for the can or cans and secrets. Thank you for the several EMPs. Wow, really appreciate that, man. Thank you. It is good to be back. I am glad to be here, and I hope y'all enjoyed the show. I should, uh, I should get my exit music ready. That's right, Wild Boar. What else could it be but kayfabe? Nothing else makes sense. I know you agree. You obviously agree with me. That's why you're here. Y'all notice that Wild Boar, you know, Wild Boar may engage in more kayfabe than even President Trump because he joins every single show I'm on and then engages in kayfabe with me and Burning Bright as if he thinks we're wrong. When really, he knows we're right. He's kayfabing in chat every single show. All right. I think that's it. I am happy to be back. Really enjoyed it, guys. Y'all have a blessed day. Have a wonderful day. I'll be back tonight on the Devolution Power Hour, and we'll see what we talk about there. And then I'll be back doing this show on Friday morning, 9.30 a.m. Um, I cannot promise I'm going to do this show every Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning, but pretty much I will. Uh, there's there's a few that may come in that may I may not be able to, but anyway, I'm back. I'm back. Probably hitting on that regular schedule more often than not, so... Uh, I am going to be live this Friday morning at 9.30 a.m. And uh, yeah, remember guys, we're, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. God bless each and every one of you. Have a wonderful day. I'll see y'all tonight.